Okay, so if you would, please open up to the book of Galatians in the New Testament. Ten years earlier than the drama you just saw, Paul, before Festus and Agrippa, Paul wrote these words in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Father and God who sent Paul, to us Gentiles, give me words that represent the intended meaning of this text, of this letter that you commissioned in your sovereign providence and historical settings for Paul to pen. that we will feel what and why He felt what He felt concerning the truth of the Gospel. To the glory of the name of Jesus, His and our Savior, I pray. Amen. The book of Galatians has a very special place in my heart and in my history. First, because it was part of the theological Copernican revolution that I was going through ten years after becoming a Christian during 1993 under my professor Daniel Payton. Fuller and sitting in his Galatians course every Tuesday and every Thursday from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. and then working on the book for hours after class so I can talk to him about it later. Second reason, Galatians is the first Bible book that I ever worked through from beginning to end as thoroughly as I possibly knew how to work through any Bible book. And thirdly, Galatians is the very first thing I ever publicly taught. Starting in 1995 at Cathedral Bible College, and over the succeeding years, I taught the book of Galatians at the college four times. I taught it two times in the local church. It holds a very special place. Now, if you're there... I hope you have a Bible. I want you to feel bad, but I hope you have a paper one you can do this. But if not, it's a little bit harder. There it is. There's Galatians. You turn the page over. Three, four pages. That's it. 
It's what we're going to see. It's what we're going to be working our way through. But the question is about those four pages that Paul wrote or dictated most. Where did it come from? It didn't just fall out of heaven from God. That's not God's normal way of revealing Himself in His truth. He uses vessels, men, prophets, editors, apostles, in particular historical settings, in the midst of particular historical situations, in particular human languages, mainly Hebrew and in Greek, and this was written by Paul in Greek. But the question is this then. What's the historical background then? It didn't just fall out of heaven. Where did it come from? What moved Paul so emotionally and righteously in anger to write this letter. So, let me just try briefly to paint a picture, okay? Just, just think about years, right? You know, maybe you're born in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s or the 90s or in the 2000s or something. You, okay, 1933, okay? Hitler is just starting. He got elected in 32. And, okay, you, you look back and, and you go through years. Let's do that now. Go back to the first century. It's the year 33 A.D. Spring. Jesus, at Passover week, was crucified. And He rose from the dead. He appeared to His apostles and to many more. Seven weeks later, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches the first Christian Sermon. Thousands come to Jesus. Thousands of who? Jews. It's for Jews. It's all they knew. Flash forward a month. Three, four. Churches growing in Jerusalem. God's doing wonderful things. Don't miss it. The church is only Jewish. To probably almost the entire first year, 50 weeks, until God in His sovereignty has persecution arise that had to finally scatter many of these Jewish believers now out of Jerusalem into the greater villages of Judea and then into Samaria where they're not technically Jews, they're half-breed Jews and the Gospel spreads to them. And one of the main instigators of the persecution was a Pharisee named Paul. The first martyr that we know about and that is recorded was Stephen. He's a deacon. He was a magnificent preacher. And he was brought before the Jewish religious authorities and the council. 
Because he was, he's just stunning people in the synagogues throughout Jerusalem. You have to know, there are hundreds of synagogues in Jerusalem in the first century. Stunning them. And he does it again in front of them. And Paul is there. Paul's their main religious zealot. And they drag him outside and they throw rocks at him. Bam, 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 bam. And Paul is there approving it and holding the coats of those who do the throwing. And then Luke lets us know, oh, but in this one instance, Paul was not ravaged, but was ongoingly ravaging the church. He was zealous with official governmental, religious governmental papers from the Sanhedrin and the high priest to jail, dragged to jail, and to prove even of numbers of them being killed until, as we heard this morning, he finally says, i got to go to other cities. And he gets the official documents of the religious hierarchy in Jerusalem to go way up to Damascus, up north, almost 200 miles, because over there word is spreading that there are Jews in Damascus who are receiving Jesus, and Paul can't stand it. And so he's on his way to Damascus. And then you know the story. I hope you know it. Jesus stopped him. The man who almost, because now it's the year 34-35 A.D., and the man who was crucified, dead, buried, and rose from the dead, and hung out with his apostles and others for 40 days. Two years later, that same resurrected man, in his resurrected body, appeared to Paul and made him a witness. Paul goes into Damascus, you know, and they're afraid of him. Ananias needs a vision in order to go and obey Jesus and baptize him. And Paul's preaching the gospel of Jesus, which he once persecuted in Damascus until the Jews are so angry at him in Damascus, they have to get Paul to escape in the middle of the night from Damascus. Okay, Paul left Jerusalem with papers. He never went back to Jerusalem after his conversion Damascus Road experience for three years. But he's up north. He's studying Jesus is appearing to him. He's preaching. And finally, three years into his conversion now, he goes back to Jerusalem. Only for two weeks. He didn't meet all the apostles. He only met Peter. And he also met another apostle, but not one of the twelve. Jesus' brother, James. And two weeks in in Jerusalem, that's it. And he's gone. And he goes up north now to the region of Cilicia where his hometown is in Tarsus. And he is there for years. Preaching. Teaching. Studying. And being encountered by the resurrected Jesus. Until... A man named Barnabas who was finally sent up to Antioch 
which is further to Damascus. It's almost 300 miles north of Jerusalem. Barnabas is there and he finally realizes, because he knew Paul now, I've got to go get Paul. And he goes to Tarsus and he gets Paul. He persuades Paul to come to Antioch and to help them out there in the ministry of preaching and teaching. In Antioch, Paul does it. They're up in Antioch. Paul is now has been a Christian for 14 years. Get it. Wait, wait, watch. He still has never gone on his first missionary journey. 14 years in. He's up there as one of the main teachers in the church of Antioch of Syria. And then, for the second time now since his conversion, he goes back again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, brings Titus, and they bring all the money that the people, the believers, dug into the pockets for to help the church in Jerusalem because of famine. He goes back, and he's there in Jerusalem, and then they come back to Antioch. Paul's probably a believer at this moment now for 15 years, maybe 16. And that's when you hit what Luke says in Acts chapter 13. And in Acts 13 and 14 is when Paul finally goes on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. And that missionary journey was the missionary journey to the region of Galatia. You can read about it. I want to read about it so badly right now. If we just spend all day like they did in the first century at church. The stories are wonderful. Frightening. Glorious. He goes to synagogue in every town he hits first. Some Jews believe. And then he goes to the Gentiles and more Gentiles believe than Jews. And those who don't believe, the Jews who don't believe, get very jealous and they persecute. Paul got stoned on this journey. They thought he was dead. Okay, So, the main cities, the main churches in the region of Galatia from chapters 13 and 14 of Acts and the first missionary journey are the cities of Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. He goes through those cities. And it's been way over a year. They don't just go in for a day or two. As long as they can until they get chased out of town. And now before they go back, they decide, we're going to go back through each town to visit the churches we planted which means probably stay there for weeks on end as much as we can and to give them more and more instruction, more and more Bible teaching. And they do that through each church. And they finally come back to their home base in Antioch of Syria. That missionary trip probably took at least two years. Paul's back in Antioch. Resting and teaching and preaching. And he's in Antioch for about a year. There's no telephones. There's no wires. There's people on business, ships, boats that travel. Being in Antioch for about a year, word starts to filter into Antioch, into Paul's ears. Paul, some other Jewish Christians went to the churches you planted after you guys left. And they're teaching them. And just to summarize it, they're saying stuff like Luke gives us in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. 
which if you're wondering where I stand on this, some of you might be thinking that way. I think Paul's letter to Galatians was written before Acts 15. Okay. But what was happening already up in those churches of Galatia, which is mainly Gentiles now, not Jews coming to Jesus, they're mainly Gentiles. What was happening up there is what was going to happen in the city of Antioch later listed right here. But some men came down from Judea, the Jerusalem church, and were teaching the brothers, the church, the Christians, unless you, Gentile Christians, are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is what's filtering down to Paul, what they're doing to his church plants up in the region of Galatia. And he is furious. And so comes what comes out of his pen in his righteous indignation. Just listen. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting God who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another only there are some who are disturbing you and they want to twist the gospel of Christ you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you before your eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed is crucified these teachers they eagerly seek you not, not commendably for no good purpose but they wish to shut you out in order that you may seek them it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery that they're trying to tell you to do. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of zero benefit to you. Galatians, I have confidence, though, in you and in the Lord that you will adopt no other view, theology. But the one who is disturbing you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Feel it? He's mad. This book of Galatians is alive. It, it, it's vigorous. It's emotional. And oh, it is theological, rational, and to the point. Of Paul's 13 extant, meaning inexistent letters that we have of his that are in the New Testament, there's 13 of them, this letter, Galatians, this is where I come from, was the very first letter he wrote, or that we have. Early on, 
probably the year A.D. 50 or 51. You cannot read the first few sentences of this letter without feeling something extremely important is at stake. Therefore, if we are granted ears to hear the truths that are in the book of Galatians and to make those truths central to our thinking and to our living, just, just not, not more, but just with the same fervency that Paul delivered them, then we will not be lukewarm churchgoers, but we will be vigilant to walk by faith, and walk by the Spirit, to adore the cross of Christ. At issue, at the core of this letter, that, that angered Paul so much, was not trivial. Circumcised and circumcised, who cares? Sabbath keeping, non-Sabbath keeping, who cares? They all believe in Jesus, the Judaizers except Jesus, who cares? Just believe in Jesus. Who cares when you got a cart before the horse or the horse before the cart on how you live your life and how you view your eternal salvation? Come on. Jesus cares. Paul, therefore, cares. Doctrine is life and death to Paul. As it is to Jesus and as it is to the whole Bible and as it was to the theologian Benjamin B. Warfield professor at Princeton when he wrote back in 1894 the chief dangers to Christianity do not come from the anti-Christian systems it is the corrupt forms of Christianity itself which menace from time to time the life of Christianity. Why make much of minor points of difference between those who serve the one Christ? Because a pure gospel is worth preserving and is not only worth preserving but is logically and logic will always work itself out into history. It is logically the only saving gospel. Do you have your attention yet? Oh, yeah. What in the world were these fellow Christians teaching? That's it's been debated for 2,000 years as a core. But I'm going to try to give you a synopsis at the core of what does it look like? What are they saying to the Galatians as a whole? Just in this first sermon, and we'll slowly be unpacking it by reading Paul and what he's saying about it through the weeks and months to come. But So just picture with me, okay? They're Jews. Paul's a Jew. Peter's a Jew. All the apostles are Jews. Okay. 
You, when you have a culture, you have a religion. That's your life. But it's true of every people groups with cultures in life, and particularly with, with them. So, so picture the first century. You're a Jew. These people who have come to faith in Jesus from Judea, these Christian Jews and of this sect here, they didn't stop reading Moses in the Old Testament from their Judaism eyeglasses. Which essentially, before they even come to Jesus, means something like this. In order to be vindicated on the day of judgment that's coming, you must be a part of God's people. And to be a part of God's people means you are a descendant of Abraham, their father, which is all there in the Bible. Okay. So now you're in the first century. Abraham lived 1,700 years ago. So, 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 what? so the Jews of the first century, you, to be that people and continue on and be that people, not like King Herod. No, no, no. You, uh, you affirm your identity to Abraham through circumcision the sign of the covenant, and through keeping all the other works of the law laid out in the books of Moses, like keeping the annual festivals, like having a kosher diet from Leviticus, don't eat bacon sandwiches or lobster, like how you prepare meals, how you wash your hands, how you wash dishes, things laid out in Moses that make you Jewish, how you keep the Sabbath with the help of the oral traditions of over 800 other laws about how to keep the Sabbath. Okay, get a picture, flashback to Jesus, why he's so angry. These people sometimes, okay. So, but that's you. Peter preaches now, Jesus is the Messiah to us Jews, which is true. And many of them come to faith in Jesus. It didn't mean they became a Gentile when it came to their eating habits. Any more than whatever you come from, you're going to change your culture. But not only that, their culture is that theology is still there. You've got to be part of Abraham. And Jesus is the ultimate promise, they believed that. Died for sins, the sacrifice. Was raised from the dead. We're in. And they believed and preached to their fellow Jews. It is being of God's people, Abraham, but now God has sent the promise, who is the Messiah. So you have to believe in Him to be saved, or you won't be saved. That's what they believed. Not though to the exclusion of circumcision and keeping all the other things of the law, but added to those things now. That's where they're at. Now, eventually, they, these, we're going to call them Judaizers. The agitators that went to Galatia, historically, most scholars have referred to them as Judaizers. Okay. So we either call them agitators or Judaizers that went behind Paul 
and preached. Eventually, they made room for, yes, okay, Gentiles can be saved. Well, in the same way that Gentiles can convert to Judaism from before. And now Jesus is added to that. They didn't come to that easily. I mean, if you remember in the book of Acts, and, and let's just get a picture here. If you think about Peter and the rest of the apostles. It was way over a year after the resurrection. They had no clue that they can even preach the gospel to non-Jews. God had to kick Peter upside the head with a vision of all those unclean, forbidden animals coming down and God says, kill and eat. No way. Oh, by the way, I want you to go into a Gentile's house. Are you kidding me? And he did. And he preached. And you know, and Peter got back to Jerusalem and guess what? Everything hit the fan. They had to have a big meeting over that. And Luke lets us know within the church was a party. Not Democrats or Republicans, but there's religious sects even within churches. And he calls it the circumcision party of Jews who are very angry that Peter went into a Gentile home. So now, years later, Gentiles can be saved. They know Paul went up there, but they know Paul doesn't tell them to be circumcised and to take upon themselves the mosaic works of the law which make them Jews who believe in Jesus. They believe you have to have Jesus to be saved. Gentiles, you can be saved. Come to faith in Jesus as long as you go on to add the traditional requirements of Gentile proselyte Conversions, circumcision, kosher diet, Sabbath keeping, all the others. Little helpful? Okay, so they come up to these churches, and predominantly, the vast majority are Gentile believers with credentials they're claiming. We are coming from the church in Jerusalem. Even where James, Jesus' brother, still is. And Zebedee's still alive at the moment. James, the son of Zebedee, and John and Peter. We're coming from them. So, we realize Paul has left out a few things. We're really happy He preached Jesus Christ to you. But we're here to make a few corrections because of omissions that He left to you. And we're here therefore to serve you this way. So starting tomorrow night, we want the whole church here in Lystra, or in Iconium, as I go there, Derby, the city in Antioch, the whole church, we're going to start, we're going to have seminars for weeks. 7 p.m. They show up. Okay, Paul did show you, right? Even from the translation, the Greek Septuagint, the Greek translation, he showed you Genesis 15:6, right? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Tit. Period. Yes. And just like you Gentiles, Paul brought the gospel to you, and you believed. That's right. And he reckoned it to you as righteousness. 
You're justified. Okay, but, but notice as you read the Bible, you go on reading the Bible, that Paul failed to tell you that after that, God told Abraham, get circumcised and circumcise all of your male descendants. So, see, Abraham went on to do these things. The father of our faith. And then, of course, hundreds of years later, for those children of Abraham... God sent Moses and brought to them the law of Moses. And how now to keep the Sabbath day? How to keep kosher diet? How to keep new moons and festivals? In other words, what makes Abraham's children distinctly Jewish and to stand out in the world. He gave these things after. That's why we're here to tell you, move on in your walk with Christ by being circumcised and doing the works of the law. It's necessary as you see in the Bible. Because if your faith in Jesus does not lead you Gentiles to go on and take on these works of the law, then you're proving you're not of the people of God and you will not be saved. Okay, there's taste. For them, faith in Jesus Christ is necessary. But, you must add to your faith works of the law of Moses in order to assure you're one of them in order to assure your justification and vindication before God on the day of judgment. That's it. Now underlying their reasoning of these Christian Jews, which is the same of the non-Christian Jews, for the most part, it was the same of Paul's theology before he was converted, is a misunderstanding, a misreading of the purpose of the law of Moses. This is how Paul summarizes it in Romans 9.32. And my fellow Jews were seeking a law of righteousness, but did not arrive at that righteousness from the law. And he says, why? Because they didn't seek it by a heart of faith. But as if it were, which means it never was, to be done by works. Thinking that your obedience brought signification before God. And that was at the bottom of Paul's Pharisaic thinking. And there are many Jews who have not left that theology after coming into the church. So, the letter, Paul addresses that theology. It's one main thing going on through Galatians now that we're going to be seeing. There's one other thing that he has to address in a letter. When these Judaizers got to those churches, they had to also do their best to discredit Paul. They had to use ad hominem attacks upon him to say, look, we have the real authority, not Paul. And that Paul will begin 
Not next week in verse 6, but in verse 11. He uses this long argument to defend his apostleship for their sakes. Okay. So, are you there? In Galatians, first five verses. It's a general salutation. What you did in the first century, Greco-Roman literature, not at the end, you sign your name, but you have a salutation that there's a standard format that Paul would normally use that had four sections. First is the sender, Paul. Then the addressee section, to whom you're writing to, to Sonia, or to the Corinthians, and then this formal blessing, grace and peace. And then for Paul, usually this thanksgiving as a Christian to God. I thank God for you. Okay, now, I wish again we can read every one of Paul's letters in a salutation and then read this, but we have time. So let me read the first five verses of his salutation. Paul, an apostle... To the churches of Galatia who are beloved in God the Father, chosen and precious in His sight. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you, churches of Galatia, for your faith and your love and your steadfastness to hold to the truth of the Gospel. You see that? Testing who's reading their Bible. It's not there like that. He simply says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through a man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That is different. It's still the standard salutation, kind of. Oh, but it's different. So let's look at the sender section. See it? Paul. And then right off the bat, he is addressing the lies of the Judaizers. Before he gets to the body of the letter, it's in the formal salutation. Paul, not, as they're saying, an apostle sent from a group of men from Jerusalem, or even from Peter, from no man, I am not that kind of an apostle. And the implication in the very first half of the first sentence 
is that if you fail to listen to what I'm saying, you are turning away from God. You are turning away from the truth. It's right there in His words. Paul, an apostle. Let's stop on that word apostle for a moment. The New Testament did not create the Greek word apostolos. You can hear the word apostle, okay? He didn't create it. It was there. Oh, but then did it change one use of it when Jesus stayed up all night praying, and in that morning, out of hundreds of disciples, He chose twelve to be His apostles. In the New Testament, let me show you for a moment, that the word apostolos is used in two very different ways. Okay? A general sense, because the word itself just means essentially a, an emissary or sent out one. Okay? It's used in the general sense of just being sent out, you know, from that company or from that church, sent out. We sent them. And it's used in a very special, significant, historical, redemptive way when Jesus personally commissioned particular men as His mouthpiece. They are on a par with Moses. Jeremiah is revelatory spokesman. So the first use, for instance, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23. Listen for a moment. As for our brothers, these other Christians, they are apostles of the churches. Now the ESV translates it messengers. It means the same thing. But they're not messengers of Jesus in the sense of Paul is an apostle. Peter is an apostle. No, no. They are sent from the churches. Just as general use. Or in Philippians 2.25, Paul writes, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and he is your apostle to me to serve my need. The Philippian church sent Epaphroditus to help Paul. He's their apostle to him. That's the general sense of the word apostle. In the very first line of Galatians, Paul is saying, I am an apostle. Not like that. No. I'm not claiming any credentials, even from the most superior men like Peter or James. We're John. So in the greeting section, right off the bat, he refutes the Judaizers' argument that, oh, Paul's just kind of learned his gospel, you know, from that group, or even from some apostle. He's coming from them, but we're here to correct him. Wrong. But, read the second half of verse 1. But... Of an apostle, dia, directly through, through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He means the unique, 
special use as a revelatory spokesperson who were witnesses to His resurrection. And just to be clear, there have been no apostles since the first century and don't expect any. Now, this is what I'm, let me try to make an argument for you. Well, what, do you well, then what makes a person an apostle here? In the New Testament, there are two requirements to be an apostle of Jesus Christ with that unique authority where God is protecting like Moses and Jeremiah with your words and even in your anger as you write a letter. There's two requirements. One is you are a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have been, in other words, encountered by the resurrected man, Jesus Christ. Not enough though, if that's all you got. Lots of people encountered Jesus in His resurrection. Didn't make them apostles. The second requirement is, along with that resurrection, you are personally commissioned by the resurrected Jesus as His personal apostle. Best thing I can do is try to just read you some text and see if you don't buy it. From what we saw here this morning, Acts 26, Bob's dramatization of Paul, we read this. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have... Don't let it fly by you. For I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will in the future continue to appear to you. He's got them both. That's what he's claiming. Or the way Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, Verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus, our Lord? Yeah. Or in 1 Corinthians 15, 8-9, talking about Jesus' resurrection, Peter and James and John and Jesus' little brother and... All were encountered by Him. And He says this. And last of all, yeah, because Jesus rose in spring of AD 33. Now, it's like probably at least early AD 35. And last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. If you drop your eyes down there in Galatians 1 for a moment, it's precisely how Paul will go on to argue 
I am an apostle precisely because I have been encountered by the resurrected Jesus and He personally commissioned me to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And he'll just say it this way briefly here in verses 15 and 16. But when He who has set me apart before I was born and who called me by His grace, when He finally, finally in my 30s, was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him to the Gentiles. With this unique mouthpiece of Jesus personally. That's what John is. That's what Peter is. That's what Matthew is. And as one untimely born who didn't walk with Jesus, who persecuted the church, Jesus has His ways what Paul is. As Paul writes to the Ephesians later, you are fellow citizens with the saints and you're members of God's household Gentiles, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Well, Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 13, and don't misread it. He's not talking about the genuine Christian experience. He's talking about the personal apostolic ministry in the first century when he says, Now we, apostles, have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God Okay, that's good. And we impart this in teaching. We impart this in words. Not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. One last one to the second to Corinthians and Second Corinthians thirteen. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. That's what he's claiming. I am Jesus' personal sent one to you Galatians. Jesus gave me, Paul, the theological goods on how the gospel of Jesus Christ goes from the Jews to non-Jewish peoples and how that works. Then he adds, and all the brothers who were with me. No name dropping. The Tim, Timothy and Barnabas. Well, none of name dropping because it would defeat his purpose right now, what he is about. His whole argument is going to go, and it starts in chapter 1 and goes through chapter 2. His whole argument is I need no name dropping except for the name of Jesus. Period. End of issue. I am on a par with Peter and James 
in John. So already, just in the sender section, Paul has stated that those teachers who are agitating you in the churches of Galatia, they cannot compare with my authority. They claim they have credentials and they're sent out from the Jerusalem church and I'm going to show you they're lying. Paul is saying, Paul said, I'm not claiming any credentials from Jerusalem. I'm proclaiming my independence on a par with them. Right there in the sender section. And then the addressee section. Notice, there's no standard to you who are beloved of God in Rome. Or to you who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Or, or, or the, what he wrote to this church in Corinth had lots of problems. Okay? And in 1 Corinthians, I mean, talking about problems. He writes this though to them. To you, or to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. But in Galatians, just to the churches of Galatia. Period. Doctrinal error. The doctrinal error going on in the Galatian churches that they're tempted to buy into is far, far and away worse than all the problems that Corinth had. Far and away worse than the sexual immorality that Corinth was dealing with. Because the doctrinal issues go to the heart of the Gospel. The only Gospel. The only truth that can save sinners. Then the blessing section. Grace and peace to you from God the Father. Lord Jesus Christ. Formal. Standard. There it is. But, he then breaks precedence of what he normally does and he adds this huge theological statement right there in the greeting section. Jesus Christ, he ain't done, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Grace and peace is offered to you, Galatians. And it's contingent as the letter unfolds. As you listen to what I'm saying and you, and you do what I tell you to do and reject these Christian teachers, Christ died for us. Listen to me, He's saying, to be born again during this present evil age 
is to be brought into the kingdom of light to deliver us from the present evil age. And part of this present evil age isn't just pure paganism and living according to the natural desires of the flesh. Part of the present evil age is religious legalism. And He's come to deliver everybody from the idea that they could ever do stuff that would therefore get God to respond in saving them. It's all right there. And in the final section, the thanksgiving section. You see it? Who? Yes? Okay. Right. Get a new Bible then, Trish. Get a new one. There's none there. But instead, there is this doxology. There is this praise to God, which he never does in his other epistles in the greeting section. This is unprecedented. And then he adds this other unprecedented word in the, in, in the greeting section. Amen. He's serious. And then after the amen, still no thanksgiving. But he goes straight into, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting God who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So right off the bat, Paul has their attention before he even gets to the body of the letter. So my question to you today is, does he have your attention? Or has this age and the ruler of this age blinded you and is blinding you to the relevance of the words that will be unfolding in Paul's letter to the Galatians? So my application is to simply say this. We must be a people who take verse 1 and verse 11 seriously. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. Verse 11, For I would have you know, brothers, that the Gospel that was preached by me is not man's Gospel. I didn't learn it from Peter or any other man. This argument. Truth matters. Jesus had a plan for Paul before he created the world. While Jesus was walking the streets of Jerusalem, Paul was probably in Jerusalem. 
God had a plan for that man. While Paul was standing holding the coats of people who needed more arm room to throw rocks at Stephen's head, God had a plan, which was not yet, but He had a plan for you to read and to obey what that man holding the coach would write to the Galatians. One day. Untimely born. Yes. But the mouthpiece also of Jesus along with the other apostles. Paul knew he had a unique role. And it's a unique authority. And his authority or any apostolic authority is not passed down through persons. Okay, Timothy, it's my time to go. You're it. Doesn't work that way. Or the Bishop of Rome. It's passed down through what they wrote and what was recorded about their words. And this means we need to read. We need to grasp Paul's meaning in Galatians. And as we do, then we're hearing the very words of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we should, week after week, be positioning our minds and our emotions, our affections, our hearts, our lifestyles, our choices to be seriously affected and changed and convicted and instructed by Jesus through the Holy Spirit as we grapple with the words of Galatians. Now what I just said right there Let's let Jesus speak to us. We live in a time where that just is not grasped very well. There are many within the evangelical church world today who seek some message from God. Oh, Jesus, speak to me. They seek a new, fresh revelation, a dream, special Word. Now, now, hear me now. I'm not, done with the, I'm not done with the statement. There's so many who do that while all the while are making no serious effort to understand the sentences that God has clearly revealed through His apostles. Like Paul. Where God has revealed His will for your life on who to marry or not, how to do your money and your time, how to treat your natural broken sexuality, how to believe in Jesus and walk and fight sin and not become a legalist. But to be free in Christ, He's revealed it through His apostles and His prophets in the Bible. Now, for some of us church-going people, 
All you got to do is watch lives. For some people, their habitual choices in life, their patterns of life show that they just don't really care about the Apostles' words. No, 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 they say they do and they read the Bible every day. Doesn't make any difference. And you know what? Who we, got? we got 13 year olds, I think, are the youngest in here right now. Look, some of us older might be able to teach you something. What really matters in life is what you do. See, words are important. I'm speaking words now. They're important. Paul wrote words. They're important. But ultimately, watch what people do. You will know what they value, what they love. So many churchgoers show they really don't value Paul, an apostle, because of the choices that they constantly and unrepentantly make. But so many others want Jesus. They want to be closer to Jesus. They want to walk with Jesus. They want to bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit as a Christian in their life. But they have developed habits of reading the Bible which cause the words that they're reading to just be like blurry, fuzzy notions. You, you know, all we can hear, we can. You're on the four or five freeway some days, and you forget there are San Gabriel Mountains over there and San Bernardino Mountains over there. You, you can't see them. You can only see two miles in front of you for smog or haze. And people have developed patterns of reading within the evangelical church in their own life that they don't get anything out of it. It's like that. When all the while Paul is painting pictures of the San Bernardino mountains in the winter with snow on top. And some days you drive down the 405 lane, you're amazed at that mountain that's there. That's what's there. And one of the main reasons I think bad patterns of reading the apostles have happened to so many Christians is because what has been modeled to them from the pulpit. That the texts are not dealt with carefully. Instead, sayings and phrases or sentences are taken out and floated around and turned over. And there's a good idea. We'll talk about love this week. Mary just mentioned here, we'll talk about that. Disconnected from the grammatical constructions and how proposition after proposition is related to make a paragraph which was written in a historical context. So many sermons have been modeled after we're working our way through James and Galatians and Jeremiah. But not based on the grammar of what the man wrote. Not based on the syntax not based on the flow of thought. And so Christians go away. And they, oh, that's right. Well, he did. He preached the Bible. He taught the Bible. And, you know, there's this phenomenon that happens a lot. You get an adult conversion to Jesus and their life is just 
chains and they got a Bible and just they start reading Romans, one of the greatest books ever written, if not the greatest, and, and it just pops off the page. So much of it is so understandable. Two years later, they understand almost nothing. Because he sat in church. They sat in church and heard sermon after sermon after sermon. It read a text and then talked about the text and they wondered, it's an, I never would have gotten that out of my Bible reading in the morning. And so they start to feel, well, my pastor, he does love Jesus and he's a good guy and he's very, and I listen, he's a very good teacher and they start to realize that must be some kind of anointing that you need to really read the Bible that way. And so by, by, by osmosis, when I've been thinking about it, it starts to get into the Christian bloodstream. I guess the Bible is sort of like a magical book where you, you, you need some kind of anointing for the Spirit to tell you what the words are meaning because look at these preachers come up with. And so they read the Bible but don't get anything out of it. Because they've been, not directly, but by implication, trained to read the Bible very sloppily. And there's an attitude that has developed within many churches that say on Sunday morning, we don't get too theological here. People can't sustain thought for longer than 22 minutes. You really can't go too deep on a Sunday morning. We'll have theological classes over here or in our Sunday school. Okay, I submit to you that what that boils down to is saying on the main service in the local church, we don't want to be too clear about what Paul means in the text. That's all it really means. And so I just submit to a sovereign grace over these months to come with an open heart, with clear minds. Read your Bible. Read Galatians. See if the things that I say are so in the text. Read Paul like you would want others to read a letter you wrote. You don't want them coming back and coming up with interpretations that had nothing to do with what you were trying to communicate. Pay careful attention to what he wrote. Follow the flow of thought, the logical connections, and how the paragraphs are connected in their context. This is the essence of humility before the Bible, before the Apostle Paul, writing to the Galatians. So, as we work through Galatians, don't be content with hazy, fuzzy notions where you can't see San Gabriel or San Bernardino Mountains. So, I want to see. Paul, why did you say this? Work at it again and again. Because he thinks it's life and death. He threatens, I tell you, if you go on and just get cut... 
and you start doing some religious observances for this reason, you will have fallen from grace. Be a person who says, oh, am I doing that in a different context? I want to know what you mean. And then as we do, by the grace of the Spirit of God, we will be being transformed as we hear the truth coming through God's apostles here in the text. So I close you with these all-important words. Paul, an apostle, we shall know the truth, therefore. And it is the truth that will make us free. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the gift of a sinner, a hell-bound, broken, messed up, murderous sinner, Paul. We thank You that You've left us 13 of his letters and we thank You You've left us this first letter he wrote. May it get into our bloodstream, I pray, to the glory of Jesus' name in the months to come. Amen.